you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, that's where we're going to start this morning. Or I guess, yeah, it's still morning. i got three minutes. <clears throat> A lot of times, um, just people, like, as people, we don't talk about death very much. And there are good reasons for that and bad reasons for that. Um, you know, from a practical standpoint, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, as an engineer, like, I spend my time talking about things I can fix. You know, I don't spend my time talking about things I can't fix. So, you know, why talk about death? You can't, you can't fix it, right? I mean, you can delay it. There's health. I'm not talking about not talking about health. Then just death, right? What are you going to do about it? Well, there's nothing, so why talk about it? Um, you know, from an emotional standpoint, though, it's painful, right, to think about. Um, maybe not your own death, but your own death may be scary, but it may be painful to think about the death of others because you're still here. You're going to miss them, right? That's, that's an emotional thing. Um, you know, but from a spiritual standpoint, it is something you want to think about. Um, it's a critical transition. It's not an end, right? It's a change. From a spiritual standpoint, it is something um, to be prepared for. Um, and in the Bible, it's, it's always death, right? The, death is presented as the enemy from the beginning to the end. It's called the enemy. And the last enemy that will be put under his feet is death. Um, but at the same time, we're told it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of mirth, right? Well, there's a reason for that, right? It's a preparation. Um, if you're in the house of mourning and you see death, you take it to heart, right? You know, because you can't do anything about it, that's going to be me, right? Well, the promises that we're going to look at in Revelation chapter 2 have to do, I think, primarily with death and being prepared for it and how we think about it and how we should view it. So we read Revelation um, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Um, and there are a couple of promises in here. There's not just a promise, but there are a couple of things stated here. Um, if you look toward the end of the passage, Jesus says, be faithful until death, right? He's speaking to the Christians there in Smyrna. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So already there's an implication that Jesus isn't saying, um, I'm going to rescue you from physical death. Even in their faithfulness, he's not going to rescue them from physical death. He says, be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. That's kind of a, it's one of the many paradoxes, right, in the Bible. Be faithful until the point you die, and then that's when you get life. Well, that doesn't make any sense, right? If in a physical sense, it doesn't, right? But that's what Jesus says. He'll promise. So that's one promise. The next promise follows um, in, in verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, no, I'm sorry, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So there's another promise, right? He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Um, so kind of the two promises I want to look at in, in the two images that are tied together here, not in depth, but just in, in general, are the crown of life, right? Jesus promises, I will give you the crown of life. He doesn't say a crown of life. It's the same promise to everyone, the crown of life. And then the second, um, he will not be hurt by the second death. So we're just going to spend a few minutes looking at these two images and then talk about what the promise means, right? Not just 
you know, an academic, oh, here's what the crown of life is. An academic, here's what the second death is. Now let's all go home, right? But what do the promises mean once we have understanding of that? You know, so what is a crown? Yeah, it, it was strange. I sat down and I asked myself that question. Well, okay, what's a crown of life? And I thought, man, that's a really strange image. We hear about the crown of life all the time, right? It's, it's in the text and people talk about it, but what is a crown of life? So if you break it down, you know, a crown is easy to understand. It's something somebody wears to show that they have authority, right? They have power. They have the right to rule. Um, kings and queens, right? People in authority, they have crowns. Princes, right? They might have a smaller crown. Right? But kings have the crown crown, right? Um, it, a crown is easy to understand. In fact, when kings were conquered, right, to show that there's been this transition of authority, I'm going to take the crown off you and I'm going to put it on my head because now I have your authority. As I'm the conqueror, I now have your authority over whatever your domain was. I'm not giving up my previous authority. I'm adding to it right, by taking your crown and putting it on my head. Um, you know, Jehovah uses crown as a symbol in Zechariah 6. Right? He, he instructs them to go create a crown out of gold and silver and put it on, you know, crown the priest right, as a symbol. And that was a bit, would have been super confusing right, for Jews to put a crown on a priest's head. You know, why are you bringing civil authority into religious authority and making them... One, right, a governing authority, that, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. But he said it will be a symbol in the house of Jehovah, right? They were supposed to look at that and say, he's bringing the two together in the future, right? And, he's, and in that text, he says the branch is going to be the fulfillment of that, right? Jesus was the fulfillment of that. Um, even David, when he conquered Rabbah, right, there's this crown mentioned that it weighed a talent, of gold. The crown was made out of a talent of gold and had a precious stone set in it. Right? If, if you know, archaeologists and historians and all these people are right, that crown weighed 75 pounds. Right? So, and it, it makes a point to say, and David put it on his head. Right? So he probably had these, you know, these, I imagine these props on his shoulders, you know, kind of coming up here and holding this 75 pound crown up so he didn't, you know, mess up his neck. Right, but the reason he did that for a reason, right? He's he, he's showing I now have this authority. It's a symbol. In reality, it's just a, it's just some metal and some stones, right? It's all stuff that they dug out of the ground, right? But it has meaning, right? And God gives crowns meaning, and Jesus here used it as with meaning, right? So I, I think that's going to help us understand what the promise is like, right? Um. Crowns are typically made out of the most valuable materials we can get our hands on. <coughs> right? I mean, I said we, we dug it up out of the ground, but that's where the precious metals are. That's where the gems are. They're in the ground, right? Um, we don't make crowns out of paper, right? And there's a lot of symbolism in the fact that Jesus' crown before he died right, was a crown of thorns, right? A crown representing authority and thorns representing the curse of sin, right? From the, from the garden. Um, there's a lot of symbolism there, right? But when we make crowns, we don't, we don't make them out of thorns. We don't make them out of paper. We make them out of something that's valuable. It has, has real, real value. 
Jesus, when he describes the crown that he's going to give in, in the passage that we looked at in Revelation 2, he says it's a crown of life. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a crown of gold. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a crown of silver. And I'm not going to give you a crown of all these jewels. He could have said that. Revelation uses a lot of imagery to talk about uh, the palace, right, the, the temple and the, the dwelling place of God in the city, right? the gold and all these precious stones. But in this text, he doesn't, he doesn't use that to impart value. He says, I'm going to give you the crown of life. I think, and you know, I, I'm open to being challenged on this, um, because it's, it's not clear, but I think Jesus is saying the real gift that he's giving is life, and you're going to wear that life like a crown. Right? The real gift is life. That, think about the context in which we, we, which we read. If you look back in Revelation 2, look how he introduces himself in this letter. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That's how he chooses to define himself. There's any number of ways Jesus could have introduced himself to the church in Smyrna, but instead he says, I was dead, or I became dead, depending on your translation, and I have now come to life again, right? Giving them some context for what to hope in, right? He can do this. He has done this. And then the promise he gives, right? He says, be faithful until what? Death. That means they're, they're going to face death. They're going to experience death. They're going to go through death. And then, if they're faithful unto death, they receive a crown of life. So the gift isn't really a crown, right? Well, what good is it a crown if I'm dead? Right? Are you going to bury me with it? Right? The gift is life. But I think when he, when he calls it a crown, I think it gives it more meaning because we're going to wear it like a crown, you know. Instead of the king walking around saying, like, like David, right, I've got this 75 pounds of gold on my head, look what I took from the king, right? We're going to walk around, right, so to speak, look at the life Jesus has given to me, right? And we're going to see that life other people are wearing like a crown, right? Wow, look at the life Jesus gave you. You're wearing it like a crown. It's giving you glory, right? It's giving you honor. Not because you seized it, Right, like the kings of the earth do, but because it was given to you by the king of heaven. Right? That life is the gift, but it's, it's going to be something obvious. Right? Um, so I think that that life, and I do not understand this, but I'm going to throw this out there because of the imagery Jesus uses here. I think that life carries with it authority to rule. We sang in one of our songs, right? They will be reigning with him forever. And we're told that we will reign with Jesus, right? I don't understand what that means, and I don't understand what we have authority over, but even in his parables, right? The good servant, you have been faithful over a little, I will make you right, master over much. I'll make you responsible for much more than you had responsibility for before. Many, many, many different images in the parables and in Revelation and descriptions of salvation that say we will reign, right? So I think that crown of life, that life, that gift of life, it's a glorious thing. It's, not, it's life itself, right? It's life from death. But it also carries with it, I believe, authority to rule in whatever way that means. I don't know what will rule, but we're told we will reign, right? So there is authority to be had. There's authority to be exercised. 
there's the right to act, right? And have those actions hold. That's what crowns give you. Okay, so that's a crown. And again, I'm, I'll get into the application a little bit later, but that's my take on what crown of life can mean, right? And we'll talk about the promise a little bit. Now let's look at the second death, right? The second promise in that, in, in that passage in verse 11, as I see it, is he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, okay, so what is the second death, right? I mean, that, that's a really vague statement. Well, if you turn over to Revelation chapter 20, we see more about the second death. Um, Revelation 20, beginning in verse 12, uh, John writes, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so... Our question sort of answered, what is the second death? Well, okay, the second death is lake of fire. Okay, well, what's the lake of fire? <laughs> okay. I mean, it's almost like we replaced one image with another image, right? But it does give us some information because what we see is it's a place to which people and beings, right, death and Hades, whatever that means, right, are sent, right, for judgment. And particularly for people, right, it's those people, those individuals whose names were not found written in the book of life. So the second death, right, is not for all. It's for those who are not found written in the book of life. Right? There's a classification. Okay, so like I said, it begs the question, what's the lake of fire? Well, if you look in that same chapter, in verse, in, in, uh, verse 10, Revelation 20, verse 10, we see a little more information Verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so second death, lake of fire, right? I'm going to use those interchangeably now, is not a place of non-existence or sleep or rest. It's a place of punishment, right? torment forever and ever. And now we're starting to, like, like our first death, right, our physical death, why think about it, there's nothing you can do about it, or it's sad, but it, we all face it. It's just kind of a fact, right? In, fa in fact, it's, it's kind of, if, if, you, if you're objective about it, it's, it's neither really good or bad, it's a transition. I'm going to go from a physical existence into a spiritual existence, right? This second death is not like that. It is bad. This is not some transition every being goes through, right, from one state to another state. This is punishment that's eternal, right? But the first death we experience and we see coming is supposed to give us some, right, some fear, some hesitation, some trepidation that hopefully we can take those emotions and transfer to this second death. That's what you need to be afraid of, right? That's what you really need to fear, it's not fearing the unknown, it's fearing the known, right? right? So, 
we're starting to get some idea of what this second death is. Now let's look also at Jesus' description in Matthew chapter 25. The last part of Matthew 25 is a very famous scene uh, that many people talk about, and rightfully so. Um, it's the scene of judgment. And Jesus making, as the judge, Jesus making distinction among those who are before him. Right? Those on the right and those on the left. And their deeds, as we just read in, in Revelation, they were judged by their deeds. Here in Matthew 25, their deeds are the distinction. You either gave me water or you didn't. You fed me or you didn't. You visited me or you didn't. You clothed me or you didn't. You helped me in my illness, my sickness, or you didn't. That's the distinction. Okay? But if you look down in, at the, in, in verse 41, these are, this is what Jesus has to say to those who didn't, right? The, those who failed, those who we might say, if we say it in, in terms of revelation, those whose names are not written in the book of life. He says in verse 41, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So now I think we learn something, well, I'll just say interesting. It's, it, it maybe carries some, some weight, but the eternal fire that we're talking about here was not prepared for people. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I don't know about you, but me, like what, what that makes me think about is like, okay, you've got the creator of the universe and everything that exists in heaven and on earth, and he's going to design a place specifically for Satan. He can make a pretty bad place. You know what I'm saying? In his mind, the reason it was created was for the devil and the angels who followed him. It wasn't prepared for people, but yet what does Revelation tell us? Those whose names are not written in the book of life go to where Satan has been a place designed to punish him. The second death is terrifying. And it should be. I mean... People make jokes all the time and say, well, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven, right? They say that kind of flippantly. and they, When people say things like that, right, it should give us pause to say, wow, you know, am I being influenced by that attitude, first of all? Do I, do I think lightly of this as well? And secondly, can I help this person understand what hell really is, what the lake of fire, what the second death really is? Are they in it? Are is there any shot of me helping that person understand this? Right. I mean, this is. There's nothing, right, lighthearted, or easy or simple, right, about the second death. It's as serious as it gets. Right? So I think that helps us understand the promise a little bit better too. But stay. But look also here in. Stay here in Matthew 25 and look at verse 46. This gives us plainly what Jesus uh, feels right, the second death is for. These will go away into, here we have it again, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's almost like Jesus is sort of, 
He just wants to drive the point home and leave absolutely no question on the table. This is punishment. This is not like you're sleeping. This is not like you're being reabsorbed into some greater God and you just cease to exist. This isn't God giving you a second chance where you sort of get to work your way into heaven from this place. The word eternal, I always think like it's a really, really, really long time. But it's not. It's a perpetual state. Right? To move from where we're at into eternity is to move into a state that doesn't change. There is no such thing as time. Like, you don't get punished for an hour in hell and then you sort of suffer for another hour and then another hour. Time isn't, it doesn't exist. Right? These, these people that Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon are transitioned into a state of punishment that doesn't change. That's eternal punishment. That's not not existing. That's not like, well, it's hotter here than I would prefer, but I can handle it. Right? Or I'll get used to this because if time passes, right, I'll I'll grow accustomed to my environment, right? It doesn't say eternal like like it's a constant state. He says it's a constant state of punishment. Even if you could somehow adapt, right? The environment adapts to punish. The state that's constant is not necessarily what you feel, right? Or what you experience. The state that's constant is the state of punishment. So, the second death sounds like something I don't want any part of. I know that's saying it lightly, but but I'm like... I don't want to be close enough to see it. I don't want to be close enough to hear it. I don't, I don't want to smell the brimstone. I'm saying, like, I don't want to be anywhere close to the second death. And Jesus promises exactly that. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so... Let's look at these two promises, right? They're, they're at the core, they're sort of this picture of death, right? Death is coming for these Christians in Smyrna, physical death, right? Jesus says, be faithful unto death. You're going to be thrown up, you're going to be locked in prison, these bad things are going to happen to you, right? But if you're faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. Okay, so that's great. So that means death isn't the end, right? This physical death is the end. I have life after that. And it's something glorious, and it's something that gives me authority. Do you think of that about that kind of picture? Do you think about that as a promise? Like, I mean, just kind of let that sink in. Somebody who cannot lie promised that. I mean, what wouldn't you do? What wouldn't you do to seize on that promise? He can't lie. I'm not saying that because I think he can't lie. He said it. It's in his own word. God cannot lie. And he's made this promise. Right? Be faithful until death. What won't you do? 
I mean, I'm not, I'm not asking that rhetorically. I'm trying to get you to ask that to yourself. What are you not doing right now? That's a promise. Seize on it. Right? And then the second death, right? The lake of fire. Think about that as a promise, right? It does exist. It has been prepared for Satan. The promise is that that thing that's been prepared for Satan, even though you have in the past committed sin and followed him and gone down that path of rebellion, if you overcome that through Jesus, that death can't hurt you. Do you think of that as a promise? Like, I mean, I think to get there, you have to sort of imagine like you're in judgment and you can kind of see the lake of fire over here and you're aware, hey, I'm a sinner. Like, I can remember I've sinned, right? And that's scary. In that situation, in that moment, do you, do you have any faith in this promise? Only you can answer that. You're the only person who can answer that. No one else can come to you and sort of give you a checkbox of lists and say, well, yeah, I think you're safe from the second death. I cannot do that. Nobody can do that. And you can't even generate some kind of list, right? What you have to do is you have to take the word and say, do I trust him or not? And the word will show you whether you trust him or not. I guarantee it. If you hold that mirror up, I mean, you're going to see some ugly things, but you'll see if you trust him or not. Right? And that's what it takes. It takes overcoming. Jesus doesn't say, you know, he whom I capriciously choose will not be hurt by the second death. He says, he who overcomes. Well, there's, you have to put in the effort to overcome. But think of that as a promise. Right? Like, look, look, I think if we look at these promises Jesus has made about death and the life to come, we start looking at our physical death like, man, that's exciting. I mean, really. Like, we start looking at that thinking like Paul thought, it's better. To be with Christ is better. But being here for him at that time was more necessary, right? To be with Christ is gain, right? But it may be better while you're here for others, right? You have time to serve. You have opportunity to influence. But when you start looking forward to your own physical death, these are the things that I think should come to our minds. I've got promises. I've got a, I've got a boatload of promises, right, that he's made to me. And I have every reason to be confident in. But that begs the final question. I'm going to ask, well, I say the final question, but I'm going to ask a lot of questions. And then that's the conclusion we'll be done. Do you have confidence in that? He gives every reason to have confidence, but that doesn't mean that we all have confidence. And I would, I would even go so far as to say we have different levels of confidence at different times in our life. You may be at a low time. Or you may be at a high time. 
But do you have confidence in those promises? Like, are the, Has he made those promises to you? Or are you sort of thinking, man, you know, once I get there, I'm going to start edging toward his right-hand side, you know, just to make sure that when he separates us, I end up on the right side. Like, I mean, do you, do you think, well, I hope that I've done enough good things that when we get there, well, I, I've been there. I'm not, I'm not going to knock that thinking, but I'm going to say that I'll, I'll, ch- I'll challenge you and say that's not confidence. That's not confidence. And really, that's not how Jesus portrays judgment. Is like he's going to grade you against everybody else in that room. That's not how, that's not how it works. He's going to... I mean, you're going to be there, right? It's, the picture is you're with everybody, but you're with him in judgment. It's, it's you and him. And you can have that confidence. He says, I mean, read 1 John. I love 1 John. Over and over and over, he says, by this you know, by this you know, by this you know. No, we can know. But we need to have that confidence. And if you know the things to do and the, the, the behaviors to have in your life, right? Well, do those things. And then that will give you confidence. And if you're ignoring them, you shouldn't have confidence. That should shake you. So here are some questions. Okay. Do you think about um, Do you think about his promise of protection from the second death with relief? Do you think, man, that's real? All judgment is going to happen, and those who are not in, and I'm not going to face that. Do you think about it with, with gratitude? I mean, it's something to think about in fear, right? We don't want it. But if we have confidence in Jesus' promises, we think about it, hopefully, with relief. But I'm not going to face that. And we think about it with gratitude that, man, he could have sent me there. And he died for me instead. Um, Do these promises inspire you to want to overcome? Like, I really, really, really want to overcome. And I'm not, I'm not going into what all that means right here. But it should, like when you read that, it should say, man, whatever it is, I want to overcome. Right? Um, is your name in the book of life? I would say if you walk out of here with one question today, that's the question you need to walk out of here with. Not, does Stephen think I'm a good person? Does Josh think I'm a good person? Can Chuck find any sin in my life? Those aren't the questions. Is your name written in the book of life? Right? If you have any doubts, right? That's not sin. Right? But draw on these people to help you work through those doubts. We all have doubts, like I said, at different stages in our lives. Doubts about different things. It's not evil, right, to have doubt. But don't let that doubt just you know, stay inside and just eat away and eat away and gnaw away and finally you just get to the point where you say, well, the doubt's so big that I, I know I can't go. I'm just not a good enough person. 
I know people in that state. I know people walking on this earth, breathing today, who will tell me to my face, I'm not good enough to go to heaven. There's no sense in repenting. They've said it. And that's because they harbored that doubt, right, about what Jesus can really accomplish. And they let it grow and grow and grow and grow. Don't harbor the doubt. Talk, talk with the people here about those doubts and get in the Word and see why those doubts can be dismissed and why those doubts can be overcome. Because they can. The people in this room cannot save you. But we can point the way. And that's all someone did for us. People in our lives pointed the way. Jesus saves us. And we can have confidence in that salvation. So, we're going to sing a song. Robin's going to lead here in a moment. And it's a time, hopefully, to reflect um, on some of these questions, on your own salvation. And it's a time that either during the song or after the song or at any time, to reach out to somebody next to you or in front of you and behind you and say, I just need to talk about this. It's as simple as that. I just need to talk about this. And I need to talk real about this. And people in this room want to do that. So if that describes you, then, then please let somebody know. And now we'll, we'll have a song. <laughs>